Well, Genesis 32. We'll be there starting in verse 1. Starting in verse 1. Now as Jacob went on his way, the angels of God met him. And Jacob said when he saw them, this is God's camp. So he named that place Mahanaim. Mahanaim. Now, as we talked about, I don't know if that's even close. Is that pretty good? Thank you. All right. I've been practicing. <laughs> as we talked about on Sunday, Genesis 32 finds Jacob between a rock and a hard place. Now, we already looked at the two prayers that he prayed in this chapter. We'll go over them again. But there are several other things that we didn't have time to get into on Sunday I'd like to point out to you tonight. Behind Jacob, there's a line in the sand. There's that place, you may recall from last week, Mizpah. That place of covenant between Laban and Jacob saying, hey, if you cross this line, you're toast. You're in trouble. Harm will befall you if you come back this way. And Jacob now has that behind him, but before him he has Esau, who he hasn't seen for 20 years, but the last time he saw him, their parting was not good. Because Esau was threatening to murder him. And so God does something incredibly significant here. As Jacob's heading back to see Esau, leaving Laban behind him, God sends angels to meet with Jacob. Now, we've talked about angels quite a bit before. We've looked at angels, we've studied them a bit as far as what the scriptures have to say about them. But it's a great comfort just to know that those who inherit salvation are guarded. That's a biblical promise. And remember we said on Sunday, pray the promises. So understand that you have protection in this world. You have guardianship. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 14 tells us, Are they, that is angels, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? So you know if you are one of those who will inherit salvation, as I believe you all are, then you have angels watching over you. Angels looking out for you. Now often, I don't know about you, but when I think about guardian angels, I think about one per person. You know, I have mine, and Mike has his, and Russ has his, and different people have their own guardian angel that kind of looks out for them. Sometimes maybe two if you're a real hard luck case and you need a little extra help. But in this situation, there's a whole host of angels sent out to Jacob. Psalm 91.11, referring as a prophetic message to Jesus, it writes, it says, For he will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. That God does send angels to protect, but this is absolutely amazing. It's not one or two or three. It's a whole camp. It's a whole company of angels. When Jacob looks at them, he says, this is God's camp. Now understand, he's not talking about the handful of angels and all of his people gathered together as one camp. He's talking about the angels alone. As they come forward, he says, this is God's camp. This is literally God's company. The King James Version renders it God's host. Now anytime you talk about a host, a host is literally an army. The host of angels who sang at the birth of Jesus were not a choir in fluffy robes. They were an angelic army. A tough group. A group that would freak you out. That's why the angels had to say to the shepherds, don't be afraid. Because they would have been afraid seeing this company of angels, this host. And Jacob comes up. It's just what we have to put up with, you know? Jacob comes up to this host of angels, this large number in this company, and so he names the place, again, Mahad Naim. 
Machanaim, which literally means two companies. The first company is Jacob, his wives, his sons, his men servants, his maid servants, his flocks. That's one company. The second company here is the company of God's angels. Clearly God wants to send Jacob a message. And not a message just by one angel or two angels or three angels, as it happened before for Abraham, but a whole host, a company of angels. The Lord, I believe, wants Jacob to understand and to know that no harm is going to come to him. That he is protected. He is surrounded by strength, by power. How Jacob responds to this, we'll see in a moment. But do me a favor and flip in your Bibles to 2 Kings. 2 Kings chapter 6. I first heard the story when I was a kid. Absolutely love this story. In fact, it comes to mind often, especially when I'm facing my own struggles and when I'm wondering or questioning, God, are you with me? Am I, am I really truly protected here? 2 Kings chapter 6, beginning in verse 8, we have an interesting story I'd just like to read to you tonight. Now the king of Aram was warring against Israel. And he counseled with his servants, saying, In such and such a place shall be my camp. Now the man of God, this is Elisha, sent word to the king of Israel, saying, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Arameans are coming down there. The king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God had told him. Thus he warned him, so that he guarded himself there more than once or twice. What's going on here? Elisha is telling the king of Israel where the Arameans are going to be. Elisha knows because God has told Elisha. Meanwhile, the king of Aram is going to get frustrated here because he continues to decide where he's going to be, move down there, but by the time he moves down there to attack Israel, Israel's gone. Or Israel's protected. And the Bible says this happens more than once or twice. Verse 11. Now the heart of this king of Aram was enraged over this thing, and he called his servants and he said to them, Will you tell me which one of us is for the king of Israel? One of his servants said, No, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel. He tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. In other words, no one could possibly know what this guy knows. You could hide away in your bedroom with your most secretive counsel, tell them what's going to happen, and Elisha's going to tell the king of Israel. Verse 13. So he said, Go and see where he is, that I may send and take him. And it was told him, saying, Behold, he is in Dothan. So he, the king of Aram, sent horses and chariots and a great army there, and they came by night and surrounded the city. This is now the city where Elisha is pulled up. Verse 15. Now when the attendant of the man of God had risen early and gone out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was encircling the city. And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? So he, Elisha, answered, do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. I have that highlighted and circled in my Bible. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Now, as a Christian, as a believer, I don't say that as a, as a place of arrogance. I don't say, oh, we're the, we're the winners here because we're such great people. We're such awesome folks. No, remember Amazing Grace? How sweet the sound to save the wretch <laughs> like me. 
We're not the great awesome people, but we are saved and we are protected. And greater is he who is with us than he who is in the world. And more are those who are with us than those who are with them. And folks, we need to be reminded of that from time to time. Because in this world, we see things happening on the news and we hear about attacks and and we live in a very, very unsettling time. But don't forget that there are more with us than there are with them. Or with him, the enemy. Elisha understands this, and this is great. Verse 17, Elisha prayed and said, Oh Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Verse 18, when they came down to him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Strike this people with blindness, I pray. So the Lord struck them with blindness according to the word of Elisha. And then Elisha said to them, This is not the way, nor is this the city. Follow me and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. Then he brought them into Samaria. And when they had come into Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. And then the king of Israel, when he saw them, said to Elisha, My father, shall I kill them? Shall I kill them? We got them. Elisha tricks them, leads them blindly right to the middle of Israel. Right in the middle of the camp. The king of Israel says, let's take them out. And what does Elisha do? You shall not kill them. Would that you kill those who have taken captive with your sword and with your bow. Set bread and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. So he prepared a great feast for them. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away. And they went to their master. And the marauding bands of Arameans did not come again into the land of Israel. It's a great story. Elisha had such a spirit about him. Elisha's the prophet. And I can't wait till we get to 2 Kings. Because Elisha's the prophet who followed Elijah. And Elisha had a double measure of Elijah's spirit. Elisha was so powerful as a prophet... That one story in the Bible tells about a man who was dead being thrown into a grave, an open grave where Elisha's bones were lying. And when his dead body hit the bones, he resurrected back to life. An amazing, powerful guy. But the greatest power Elisha had was the confidence of knowing greater are those who are with us than those who are with them. Jacob, back to Genesis 32, is between this rock and hard place and he needs assurance. And he gets it. Boy, he gets it. This massive company of angels. Great comfort in the form of a great company. But you know, it's just Esau. It's just his brother. Why is it that God sees fit to send an entire company of angels to encourage Jacob? Why so many? Why is it so important that Jacob be encouraged in this moment of time? Proverbs 18, verse 19 says the following. A brother offended is harder to be won than a strong city. And contentions are like the bars of a citadel. (laughs) Folks, that's the world that we live in. And I don't just speak for myself in saying I understand that we all have had to deal with people who are offended at us. Offended at you personally. And possibly you did something that was deserving of the offense. Possibly you did something that was not deserving. But whatever the reason, you might have friends, you may have family members who are offended. And you know how hard it is to bridge that gap. Once it happens, 
once there's division in relationship, a brother offended is harder to be won than a strong city, and contentions are like the bars of a citadel, and that, that is why Jesus says, forgiveness should happen 70 times 7. Because forgiveness and reconciliation is hard. We're going to see a few things in this chapter that are just hard about following after Jesus. And reconciliation is hard. This is not something that comes about easily. If you've been banging your head against the wall trying to reconcile with someone in your life and it just doesn't happen, and every time you try you get slapped, and if that's your life experience, don't stop. Because reconciliation is hard work. It is the hardest work. In fact, it costs the Lord Jesus his very life. If reconciliation was easy, Jesus could have just come down and said, Hey guys, just seek forgiveness. Come to me, come to my Father, accept me as your Savior, and we'll be done. But reconciliation is hard. Reconciliation is difficult. And reconciliation, folks, it's the business of Christianity. Don't you hate that? <laughs> I mean, aren't there times where it would just be nicer to walk away from it? To let it go? To forget it? Just to say, you know what? Maybe I'm an offense to you, but now you're an offense to me, and I don't want to deal with you anymore. But that's not our right. What do you mean it's not our right? But we have freedom in Christ. Yeah, you have freedom to give up all of your rights to Jesus. And once you do, then he's calling the shots. If you truly want to follow him. Now, I don't know what's going on in each of your lives. I only know what's going on in mine. But I can tell you this. We all have a job of reconciliation. And there may be someone that, you, that comes to mind right now. You're thinking of them and you're going, No, 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 no. I don't want to deal with that person. I don't want to think about that. That person has offended me. Well, Jesus would say, 70 times 7. Now that's 490, but I can guarantee none of us have come close to that in our attempts to forgive other people. And he doesn't mean just 490, obviously. He means on and on and on. Folks, peace, the removal of contention, is costly. And we've got to remember it cost Jesus his life. Should it not cost mine as well? Well, Jacob got angels traveling with his family, and so he prepares to meet his offended brother. Verse 3. Then Jacob sent messengers before him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. And he also commanded them, saying, Thus you shall say, shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen and donkeys and flocks and male and female servants. And I have said to tell my Lord that I may find favor in your sight. Now, Jacob's doing some things here. I'm going to give you four things that you can kind of watch this pattern taking place of how Jacob reacts in this rock, between this rock and the hard place. And the first thing Jacob does is he requests a peace. He requests a peace. He sends servants ahead to see if Esau is coming and to tell Esau, tell him that I want peace. There's no more competition. I have men servants and maid servants. I've got donkeys and camels and sheep. I'm a wealthy man now. I've done very well for myself. I don't need anything from you. I'm not coming back to compete for you with you for other things. So just tell him. There's no competition. He doesn't need to think of me as a threat. He's also, it's interesting, he's taking kind of a downside in the relationship and he's saying, tell Esau 
I want permission. I, I want his permission to come back in the land. I, I want to find favor or grace in his sight. So Jacob first requests a peace. Verse 6. The messengers returned to Jacob saying, We saw your brother Esau. And furthermore, he is coming to meet you with 400 men. And Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. And he divided the people who were with him, the flocks and the herds and the camels, into two companies. For he said, if Esau comes to the one company and attacks it, then the company which is left will escape. And this is how you fought a lot of times in those days. If you had a company of people and you were in, in danger, divide and conquer or divide and flee. But anyway you do it, you divide so that you can protect some while maybe the others are attacked. Someone will survive. So Jacob requests a peace, but then when he hears that Esau is coming, he reacts in a panic. He reacts in a panic. This is the same Jacob who just met with a host of angels. Who was just reassured that God is with them and that more are with him than could possibly be in the world. But he's reacting with a panic. He's got the host of heaven looking out for him, and still he's freaking out. And of course he is. So do we. That's exactly what we do. But why do we panic? Why do we freak out? Why do we ever worry when we understand that God's on our side? Because, like Jacob, we all can sense heaven ho heaven's host in one moment. But in the next, we can be as blind as Elisha's servant. We can experience God in His presence. We can be in the Word or in prayer or with other believers and feel stronger than anything in the world. Nothing could possibly take us down. And within 24 hours, we can be in absolute fear that our life is falling apart. So Jacob is just doing what you and I do. He's just being human. And in this moment, he reacts in a panic. So how do we overcome blindness? How does Jacob... The third thing that happens is Jacob resorts to prayer. Verse 9. Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham, and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, Return to your, to your country and to your relatives, and I will prosper you. I am unworthy of all the loving kindness and of all the faithfulness which you have shown to your servant. For with my staff only I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become... Two companies. Now, by the way, it's interesting to me in verse 10. Since I've become two companies, when I left here, I was by myself. It was just me and my staff, and I crossed over. And you may recall in chapter 28, it tells us that Jacob got saved. And then beyond that, God began to be in contact with him. And now Jacob is praying after having been with the company of his angels that he knows are there. So two possibilities are that Jacob is just saying he's become two companies because he's divided his family and flocks and, and all of his servants. But it may also still be Jacob's recognition that I am now two companies. It's not just me. The Lord's host is with me. Verse 11, deliver me, he prays on. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau. For I fear him, that he will come and attack me. And the mothers with the children. I love the honesty here of Jacob. It's brutal. It's straightforward. He is afraid. And he's not afraid to tell God he's afraid. It's a good example for us. Verse 12, For you said, I will surely prosper you and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which is too great to be numbered. The beautiful thing here, folks, is that Jacob is going straight to the Father. Oh, he's protected. He's surrounded by angels. Certainly he knows that they are there. But his appeal is not to the angels. 
His appeal is to the Father. Having just met with the angels, he could say, Hey guys, where, could you show yourselves? I just need that reassurance again. Where'd you go? I need your help. But he goes right past them. He, he prays right over their heads. Straight to the Father. It's a good example for us because some people, even in today's world, will appeal to angels for help. In fact, one of the big hit songs on the radio right after 9-11 was a song by a man named Train called Calling All Angels. Calling all angels. I need a sign to let me know you're here, they say. I'm calling all angels. And I'm thinking you're stopping short of the power. You're missing the string. If we're reaching out and hoping that angels can answer our prayers, they can't, folks. As a matter of fact, Revelation 19.10 tells us that John, after receiving this revelation, falls down on his feet in front of an angel to worship him. And the angel says, don't do that. I'm just a fellow servant of yours. The angel places himself equal to John. says, I'm your fellow servant and of your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And did you know this? 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 3 reveals that we, believers, will one day judge the angels. Do you want to appeal to angels for help in this world? Not that they're bad guys. They're great, wonderful. I'm glad I'm protected. I'm so thankful that God saw fit to guard me in this world. But my appeal is not to them. My appeal is to the real power, to the real strength, God the Father in heaven. And the trouble with appealing to angels is that they simply exist to do the will of the Father anyway, so go to Him. Take your concerns to God. Some people, as opposed to appealing to angels, will appeal to men for advice. That's a funny one. I used to, in, in teaching teenagers, there were several opportunities they had talking to kids about how, how they would not listen to their parents or to adult figures or to authority, but they'd go to their friends for advice. And that never made sense to me. Why would a 15-year-old go to another 15-year-old for advice when the other 15-year-old knows no more about the world than they do? And why would we as adults go to other adults for eternal advice when we know no more about eternity than anybody else? God has the handle on it. Go to the Father. You know, it's really funny. When I was studying psychology, I, I ran across a study, a 40-year-long longitudinal study. That's a study over time where they basically check and watch the outcome over a long period of time. 40 years. And what the study was all about, it was about therapy and counseling, and they were comparing the effectiveness of long-term psychotherapy to friendship. Trying to show, obviously, that psychotherapy was, was extremely important and valuable after 40 years of study. You know what the results were? They couldn't tell any difference. Paying hundreds of thousands of dollars to see a therapist versus just having a friend who would listen. Interesting. We want to run to human help when we have the God of the universe who knows our pain, who knows our hearts, who understands us deeply inside out like no other. There's only one who is both concerned and powerful enough to care, and that's the Lord. So Jacob appeals to the Lord, and as we saw on Sunday, he does so by God's word. He prays through the word. He says, Lord, you said to me, return to your country and to your relatives, and I will prosper you, verse 9. And you said, verse 12, I will surely prosper you and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which is too great to be numbered. Jacob prays the word of God. He relies on God's promises in his own prayers. You don't have to be succinct and you don't have to have great language and, and, and great words. You don't have to be this amazing person in speech. 
Just pray the promises of God. You may be alone in your home or out walking somewhere and you have your Bible and you want to pray, but the words fail you. Open up to the Psalms. Pray the Word. Find a passage that is particularly meaningful where God is promising to care for you and provide for you and watch out for you. And pray those words. Remind God of what He told you. Listen, if we pray the promises... If we remind God of what He has said He will do, something amazing happens every single time. Well, wait a minute. I've prayed to God many times and gotten no response. So how can you say something happens every single time? Folks, circumstances may or may not change in our lives when we pray. Only God knows why He's doing what He's doing and how he's laying things out and why he responds in the way or doesn't respond in the way that he does only God knows and he's allowed to know because he's sovereign something still happens every time we pray the word and this is a guarantee your faith expands grows bigger the more you come before God with needs, requests even if they seem childish even if they seem selfishly motivated you know I think at times God just wants us to come He just wants us to talk to Him, to approach Him, to bring it to Him. But the more you pray, and especially the more you pray the Word, your faith gets bigger. It gets stronger. And you know what will happen is you will begin to see God's answer. You will begin to experience God's faithfulness down the road, and it will overwhelm you, and your faith will grow. As we said Sunday morning, George Mueller said, I take the promises of the Word, and I argue with the Lord. I take His promises and I hold them up and I say, See, you said this. You promised this. Will you please do this? But He says, I don't do it in order to convince God, but to convince me. I do it to convince myself. Now, unfortunately, after Jacob requests a peace with his brother and then reacts in panic to his brother's coming with 400 men and finally resorts to prayer, we think, Wonderful, he's praying. This is a great moment here. Starting in verse 13, Jacob resumes his plotting. Kind of slips back into it. He's prayed now, but now he's going to get busy and work out a little plan. Verse 13. So he spent the night there, and then he selected from what he had with him a present for his brother Esau. A bride, really. 200 female goats and 20 male goats. 200 ewes and 20 rams. 30 milking cows and their colts, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. Then he delivered them into the hand of his servants, every drove by itself. And he said to his servants, pass on before me and put a space between the droves. And he commanded to the one in front saying, when my brother Esau meets you and asks you saying, to whom do you belong and where are you going and to whom do these animals in front of you belong, then you shall say, These belong to your servant Jacob. It is a present sent to my lord Esau. And behold, he is also behind us. Then he commanded also the second and the third and all those who followed the droves, saying, After this manner you shall speak to Esau when you find him, and ye shall say, Behold, your servant Jacob is also behind us. For he said, check this out, I will appease him with the present that goes before me by him out. Then afterward I will see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on before him while he himself spent the night in the camp. This is actually pretty darn shrewd. Jacob takes a bunch of, you know, flocks. 
lines them out and sends them in droves one after the other so basically as Jacob's, as Esau is coming with 400 men all of a sudden he runs into this huge flock of sheep whose are these? they're yours from Jacob oh, yeah Jacob okay and he keeps on walking and then he hits another flock and then another one and then another one and you know what bribery works it does You'll see that by the time Esau gets there, he's pretty broken down. The problem is that Jacob, he is again doing what so many of us do. Well, you know the famous verse, God helps those who help themselves, which is not a verse at all. It's not in the Bible. Ben Franklin said that one. And he was very much into helping himself. He was a believer. He did believe in God. But you know what Benjamin Franklin did one time? He actually sat down and wrote out a list of his sins and determined to conquer them. And as he conquered each one of them, he checked it off the list until he had completed the whole list and realized he was a sinless man. God helps those who help themselves. I'm sure Ben and and God had a few conversations after he made his way up to the pearly gates. But there's another well-worn Christian saying that you may have heard. And it goes like this. Do your best and commit the rest. Do your best and commit the rest. Now, it's not a bad idea. However, it still falls short of truly relying on God's power. It still says, I'm going to do everything I can, and then what I can't do, I'll give that to God. And the Lord's saying, well, you can function that way if you want to. Feel free. Have a field day. But you're going to find that the part you do doesn't work out so well. Why not give me the whole thing? I'll just take it all, and I'll make it work for you. How often do we pray, folks? Ask God to do something and then go right ahead with our plans. Cheryl and I are praying right now for a a rental house. Uh, We've got to get out of the D'Angelo's place. They are killing us. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) They're not here. I can say that. No, Jeff and Penelope have been great, but we're 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 coming up to about a six-month period here before our house is going to be ready, we're praying. And... We need somewhere to stay. They've got family stuff, and, and so we're looking. And yesterday, oh, we found the perfect place out on West Beach, and it's just, it's gorgeous. It'll be great for this view. Every, I mean, it's great. So we got home, and when we talked to the rental agency, and I, I just, well, I won't go there. Um, kind of frustrating. We spent a couple of days over the last week or so trying to find somewhere, and we finally found this place, and it's great. And we got home, and we've been praying all night about it. We got up this morning, we called the rental agency, and they're saying, no, uh, we haven't gotten a hold of the owners yet. We'll let you know when we do. And that was this morning. And this afternoon, I picked up the phone again and went, so have you heard from them yet? No, we haven't heard. So we're just like, ah! And so Cheryl and I are talking about, well, do we need to hit the pavement again? Do we need to start looking? And right now, <laughs> I'm in the middle of studying this as we're discussing this, so this may be a bad thing, Cheryl, but I think we're supposed to just wait. How often in our lives, and that's a silly example, but how often in our lives do we pray for something, and then the next morning when it's not going exactly like we wanted it to go, we ask you, Lord, and you're not acting, so I guess we need to act. And meanwhile, God's going, permit me to be gracious. Give me a chance to do something in your life. You rush ahead. Yeah, but I don't have much time. Well, Moses had to wait 40 years. I mean, look at how the guys in the Old Testament, how much time they spent. Jacob was 20 years under the thumb of Laban. We need to learn something here. And that is to pray and to wait. To be still. And know that he is God. To actually give God opportunity to move in our lives before we're so busy moving out ahead of Him. 
Isaiah chapter 40, verse 27. You've heard this verse, but it is one of the most beautiful written in Scripture. Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or grow tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary. And to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will not walk and not become weary. Those who pray and run out the very next morning to do it all themselves will mount up with no. Those who wait. Those who wait for the Lord. Wait for Him. Oh God, I've got a timetable. It needs to happen within this amount of time. You know what I've discovered in, in my short life? I've discovered that the, the few times when I do wait for the Lord, absolutely amazing, glorious things happen. He blows my mind. This church, folks, is a result of waiting for the Lord. And I'm not just talking about myself. But this church, this fellowship exists because instead of going out and pounding the pavement and, and looking for ministry opportunities... People waited and prayed, God, what do you want? What do you want to see happen? And where do you want it to happen? Wait on the Lord. Let's not be so hurried, so rushed. Remember, not only do you have that host of angels watching over you, but God knows exactly what's happening in your life. He hasn't forgotten that Cheryl and I would like a place to rent until we've built our house. He knows. So wait on the Lord. Now, perhaps this is the message that the Lord wants Jacob to wrestle with as the next night unfolds in an amazing, dramatic prayer. Verse 22. Now he arose that same night and took his two wives and his two maids and his eleven children and he crossed the ford of the Jabbok. And he took them and he sent them across the stream. And he sent across whatever he had. And then Jacob, Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. You may remember from Sunday who that man is. It's Jesus Christ. God wrestling with Jacob in the flesh. Well, how can you say that, Rick? You're going out on a limb there. No, it's a Christophany. And it's very clear both from this passage and from others. Jesus is wrestling with Jacob. God in the flesh. Even Jacob, by the way, recognizes when it's all over that he's been struggling with God. That he has been face-to-face -face with God. Now you may say, well, wait a minute. Well, how can you be face-to-face -face with God? The Bible says no man can see God and live. That's true. No man can see God in all of his glory and live, which is why God put on an earth suit in the first place. Why he became human like us, so that we could see him and live. As a matter of fact, so that by seeing him and believing in him, we could live. Now remember our outline here. We've been talking about Jacob for the last few weeks. And we said that in this outline, first we we're going to see him saved. Chapter 28, he was saved at Bethel. Remember Bethel? It was called Luz. 
meaning separation. But Jacob met God there, was saved there, and he changed the name to Bethel, house of God. Jacob moved from, from separation into being in God's house. He was saved, and then secondly, he was subdued at Paddan Aram. Subdued by his uncle Laban, a most unlikely character for God to use, and yet God does use Laban, deceitful, harsh Laban, to show Jacob himself, as we said last week, to hold up a mirror to Jacob so he could see the kind of person he had been, the deceiver that he himself had been. And God is subduing him, which often happens. We're seeing a process here in Jacob's life that's similar to ours. God saves us, but then he begins to work to subdue us. Salvation doesn't happen, remember, because we've done anything. Salvation happens as a gift of God. The most outlandish person in the world, me, was saved by God, not because I had done anything. But after our salvation, God begins to work. He begins to subdue. He begins to change us. Even if it's painful, He holds us down and He gets us to where we can truly be used by Him. And now, Jacob is at this place that will be called Peniel. Peniel, where Jacob is not saved, that already happened. He's not being subdued, that already happened. Now, Jacob is being sanctified. Sanctified. Verse 25. When he saw that he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of his thigh so that the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. Now I want to pause for just a moment and sit on this verse, just as the Lord is apparently sitting on Jacob. And I want you to notice a couple of things that just jumped out at me as I studied this just since Sunday. Number one, God causes a divine dislocation. He causes a divine dislocation. Why does he wrench Jacob's hip? Why the hip? Why not the shoulder? Or why not the ankle? Or why not twist his neck a bit, leave a little scar there? Or why not just bat him about the head? Why touch and dislocate his hip? Well, I thought about this, and I, I don't know that we can know the mind of God exactly, but we can venture a guess here. My guess is that he touched Jacob's hip so Jacob would stop running away. As a matter of fact, after this point, he will never do what he's been doing all his life again, and that is run. He ran from Esau to save his life, to pat an Aram. And then he runs from Laban, sneaking out in the middle of the night. And now God touches his hip. He's going to walk with a limp. He won't even be able to walk the way he did before. But I guarantee you, he will not be able to run anymore. God puts a halt to that. By wrenching Jacob's hip. Consider Isaiah chapter 40 verse 31 again. It tells us, Yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Now I love the intentional digression of this verse. It seems backward, but listen to this. The prophet is saying those who wait for the Lord will first mount up with wings like eagles. It's a great picture of someone getting saved. Someone who waits for the Lord in the beginning and mounts up with wings like eagles. You become saved. You're so excited, passionate, ready to go anywhere with the Lord. You could fly on the emotion and the enthusiasm, the spirit that is in your life on the moment you were saved. Do you remember that day? Do you remember when you came to the Lord how exciting that was? Mounting up with wings like eagles, but then also the person who waits for the Lord will run and not get tired. Well, this is a beautiful picture of a Christian hitting their stride. I'm not mounting up. I, you know, I'm not emotional, and, and, and every, every day in my Christian life isn't, Woohoo, I'm saved, this is great, praise God. 
I'm running and I'm in my stride and I feel strong and I'm, and I'm doing well. And man, I just love the Bible studies and I'm in the scriptures and I'm worshiping and things are good. And then there's walking without becoming weary. And it's a beautiful Christian, a picture of a Christian insecurity. A beautiful Christian of that, a picture of that point in a Christian's life where we slow down. We're no longer flying like eagles or running in our stride, but we're walking consistently. We are going forward. We are walking in the pace of peace. We're walking with real reliance, in total trust. And we don't grow weary because in the walk we have learned something that Jacob learns right here. With his dislocated hip, Jacob learns to lean. And we learn to lean on God. And I firmly believe that this is exactly where God wants to take us. Yes, He wants us to mount up. And those times still happen from time to time. Yes, He wants us to be able to run and not get tired. But I think more than anything else, God wants us to walk. Consistently. Straightforward. Without becoming weary. In 1989... I was at a North, Northwest Youth Pastors retreat, and there was a man there who was our speaker, a very gentle, elderly gentleman. He was in his 70s. His name was Wally Wilkerson. You remember Wally? We called him the old youth pastor, because even in his 70s in retirement, he was still a youth pastor. He worked with teenagers. He loved teenagers, and he was speaking to a group of us youth pastors there on the weekend. Wally walked very slowly. Wally had MS. A lot of us weren't even sure how much longer Wally was going to be around. But I'll tell you something about this man. To look in his eyes, you saw someone who was never weary. Whose, whose eyes sparkled. Clear blue as though the spirit was right behind his lenses. I know the spirit was there. There's something impressive, gang, about the enthusiasm of a babe in Christ. Something impressive about the stride of a strong believer. But I really think the older I get the more I would rather just walk securely. Leaning on Jesus. I learned so much from Wally just in that one weekend because of the attitude of his heart. And I began to see, even as a young youth pastor myself, that's where I want to be. That's where I want to be. I would watch teenagers in my youth group and they would just be on fire for Jesus one moment and deep, thick in sin the next. And I'd think, mounting up with eagles... Man, you can fall awfully far. I would see other pastors around me who were running in their stride. And man, they were busy. And they were doing the work of God. Well, sometimes their families suffered. And then I saw Wally and I thought, that's where I want to be. I don't want to fly. I want to run. I just want to walk with the Lord. Well, God gives Jacob divine dislocation. And he'll never run away again. He'll limp. He'll lean on a stick. He will need the Lord from this day forward. But there's something else here in verse 25 that concerns me. When it tells us that he saw that he had not prevailed against him and he touched the socket of his thigh. So the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he was wrestling with him. And here's the problem. God causes deliberate damage. God hurts a man purposefully. God causes pain. Now, growing up, that always made me uncomfortable. I would always say, no, God doesn't cause bad things to happen. He just allows them to happen. He lets them happen, and then he swoops in and he makes it all better. Because that's all I could comprehend. 
That's all I could understand about God. That No, God couldn't cause pain, could He? The, the loving God, well, if God is love, how come even Christian people, if God is love, why is it that Jane Jones has cancer? God in this moment, with Jacob, causes pain. Makes the pain, this is God's finger, gang, that touches the, the thigh, that dislocates Jacob. Have you ever had a pain in the hip? Now, I've had bone graft surgery twice. Some of you know, growing up, I had, by the time I was 21 years old, over 20 surgeries, all having to do with cleft lip and cleft palate. Two of those surgeries were taking bone out of my hip, ow, and grafting it into my jaw. Which means when I sing, I'm kind of hip now. <laughs> Sorry. Sometimes you don't know where it comes from. Cheryl certainly doesn't. But anyway, in all of those surgeries, the two worst, the two most painful by far were the ones with the hip. I learned after both of those surgeries how often you run your hip into a wall and you don't even realize it on a daily basis. Bumping into things, oh, okay, time out. The day that I came out of surgery, I'm lying in bed and my best friend, Chris Stevens, walks into the room and all he did was just go like that. And I'm like, don't make me laugh. Please don't make me laugh. Because even laughter, coughing, sneezing, clearing my throat, it was horrible pain. So here's Jacob with his hip dislocated in serious pain and God is the one who causes it. And this totally throws a wrench into the works of, of our trying to understand God in pain. And trying to explain it all away and say, well, you know, there's sin in the world. And there's Satan in the world. And that's why there's pain. And even cancer. We can trace cancer probably all the way back to some sin that, that, turned, that got it going in mankind. And, and everybody else after the fact has suffered. It's got to be because of sin. This is not because of sin, folks. This is God making a deliberate decision to dislocate his hip, to cause pain for Jacob. And that messes me up theologically. How do we work our way through this? How do we understand it? If he's a God of love, why the pain? Verse 26. And then he said, Let me go, for the dawn is breaking. But he, Jacob, said, I will not let you go. I will not let you go unless you bless me. What's the deal here? I'm going to answer this pain question, but again, Hosea 12, verses 3 and 4, we read this on Sunday, gives us insight into the verse. It says, in his strength, in his strength, Jacob wrestled with God. But then it says in verse 4, Yes, he struggled with the angel and prevailed. When did he prevail? Hosea says he wept and made supplication to him. I didn't even see this until yesterday. Look at, listen to this verse again. First half of the verse. In his strength, in his power, Jacob wrestled with God. Yes, he struggled with the angel and prevailed. When? When he wept and made supplication to him. All the way up to the point where God causes pain, where God causes the dislocation, Jacob's doing good. He is wrestling with all his strength, all of his might, all of his intellect, everything that makes up who Jacob is. Man, he's using it and he's holding God off and he's wrestling and the Lord sees the tenacity of this man. 
And so God has to do something to get through to him. Boom. And in that moment of pain, and it is not noticed until that pain, when Jacob says, I will not let you go until you bless me. I can't let go now. I won't let go now. In Jacob's power, he struggled with God, but it was in Jacob's pain that he prevailed. Let me say that again. In Jacob's power, he struggled with God, but in his pain, he prevailed. In his pain, he finally understood that he couldn't let go. In his pain, he realized that he had to hold on. In his pain, Jacob understood that he was helpless and hapless and hopeless without the Lord. So why does God cause deliberate damage again? Listen to this, gang. God's intention for you and me on planet Earth is not for this life. God's intention for us is eternal. It is not for now. It never has been about today or tomorrow or the next day. It is not about your yesterdays. That is not why God seeks relationship with us. It's not to make your quality of life go up. It's not about sensuality or carnality or frivolity. It's not about prosperity or practicality. His emphasis is not on your heredity or your posterity. In fact, it's not even about piety, religiosity, or some vague sense of spirituality. I got a rhyming dictionary this week, so I use it. God has one great concern for you and for me, and that's eternity. And that's it. That's the point. From a God's eye view, from His perspective, nothing that happens on planet Earth matters except that which leads us into eternity. That matters. That's important. That's what God seeks for us. John 3.16, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have a happy life. Have a better life. Have a pain-free life. Have a comfy, cozy life. No, that whoever believes in Him would have eternal life. Oh, but I don't like the pain. Let me put it this way. Even if it hurts in the now, so be it. Even if it waylays us today, fine. If God can use us, can use it, the pain, to get us there, then I would say, use it, Lord. Use it. Do whatever it takes to get me from here to there. Because here doesn't matter a stitch. Well, that sounds a little harsh, Rick. Let me tell you what's harsh. Amos chapter 3 verse 12 tells us the following. Just as the shepherd snatches from the lion's mouth a couple of legs or a piece of an ear, so will the sons of Israel dwelling in Samaria be snatched away. Get this picture. Amos 3.12, just as the shepherd snatches from the lion's mouth a couple of legs or a piece of the ear. What's going on here? The little lamb is being attacked. The little lamb is being eaten alive by the lion. And the shepherd reaches out and grabs on to the lamb for dear life. He will try anything he can to save the lamb. And he may only pull out a couple of legs. He may only end up holding up a little piece of the ear. But the shepherd is fighting for the lamb. 
And if I'll tell you, if the shepherd pulls that lamb out, bloody and bruised, but alive, then he has saved a lamb. And if God pulls us out, bloody and bruised, but alive, then he has saved us for all eternity. Praise God, isn't that the point? So I'm bruised, so I'm beaten, so I'm cut up and scarred. So I'm hurt emotionally. So I'm devastated. So my life was an absolute catastrophe. But the second that I step into heaven, it's over. And it matters nothing. We have a little saying in our family right now. First night in the new house. That's our saying. Whenever it gets difficult, whenever we're frustrated that we have yet to get in that house. First night in the new house. And every time I say that now, I'm thinking, whoa, first night in the new house. <laughs> first second in the kingdom. First moment on the honeymoon. The first sound of Jesus even speaking, come up here. And the whole thing will not matter. It'll be over. Who cares? And in that moment, we'll look back and go, what's a little pain? I got eternity. I have forever. Paul understands this clearly. He understands this. He sees it. He experiences it in his own life. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16. Paul said, At my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. He said, But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished, that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. Gang, every single one of us who receives eternal salvation will have been rescued out of the lion's mouth, pulled out, stolen away, saved. The Lord, Paul says, will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom to be, to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now listen, God doesn't just touch Jacob with physical pain. He also touches Jacob much deeper than that because God wants to sanctify this man. Look at verse 27. So he said to him, so he said to Jacob, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. We talked about this on Sunday. The last time a father asked Jacob what his name was, remember Jacob said, Esau. Oh, I'm Esau. Uh, I'm not Jacob. I'm Esau. Uh, I'm Harry. I'm, I'm not the supplanter. I'm not heel catcher. I'm not the deceiver. I'm your firstborn son, the one that you love. That's me. I'm Esau. And so God pulls Jacob back to that moment and says, What's your name? Tell me your name. He makes Jacob say it. He takes Jacob right into the heart of confession. Tell me who you are. And by the way, God didn't need to hear Jacob's name. Jacob did. Jacob needed to speak his name to the Lord. I am Jacob. I am the supplanter. I am the deceiver. Verse 28. And he said, Your name is no longer Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. And again, Sunday we mentioned, I'll say it one more time if anyone missed it. Israel is a combination of two words, Sarah and El. Is Sarah El? 
Sarah meaning to prevail or to be a prince or to be a ruler. An El meaning God. A ruler with God. A prevailer with God. And this, folks, is the moment that Jacob prevailed. In this moment, when Jacob finally admits his name, when he confesses before God, he prevails. And that's when we all prevail. We prevail at the moment of confession. And confession is not for God's ears. It's for our ears. 1 John 1.8 If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Romans 10.10 tells us, For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. And listen to this, Psalm 38.18. David writes, For I confess my iniquity. I am full of anxiety because of my sin. That's what sin does. Unconfessed sin festers in us. It, it's, we become full and, and sick on the inside. 1987, Cheryl and I had been married a year and we went to be camp counselors over the summer. And that summer it hit the great camp flu of 1987. And everybody in the camp got it. It was one of the most painful Christian camp experiences of my life. And I got it the second day. And folks, I have never had the flu as bad in my entire life as I had it at camp. And you don't want to have the flu at camp. You want your own bathroom with your own nice, clean, cool toilet. You don't want the camp facilities. And so, and Cheryl got it right after me. And it was awful. It was like, my body was racked in pain. The, the throwing up was constant. It was absolutely horrible. Until one night... And I was finally just starting to feel a little bit better, but still just achy and ugh. And the room that I was staying in, I needed to move out of and back into the dorms because someone else needed the room. And, and so we were just kind of switching and moving people in and out. So I'm lying in my bed in the dorm. It's cold. I'm shivering. I still have a fever. And long about midnight, 12.30, I knew I had to head for the bathhouse. And I also knew I wasn't going to make it. And I ran out the door, and I got about 10 feet away, and, I, <laughs> and I'll tell you what, nothing was left after that. But something interesting happened. In the very moment that I was through doing that, hang on, they're determined tonight. They're determined to interrupt, and we're not going to let them. In the very moment that I was done throwing up, my fever broke. Even as I was walking back to the dorm, I was going, I feel pretty good. <laughs> Maybe there's something to this. <laughs> and I got back in bed, woke up the next morning, and I was 100%. And why I tell you a story about throwing up because that's exactly what confession is. If I can be a little gross and a little crude, confession is throwing up. Because as the psalmist says, when it's inside of me, I am full of anxiety because of my sin. I'm sick. I'm nauseated. And when I try to hide it and keep it to myself, it's like having the flu. It's just, oh, and I don't want to talk to friends because they might see it in my eyes. And I don't want to talk to family because they will see it in my eyes. And I hang on to this horrible thing and God says, you've got to confess it. And when you confess it, when you let it go, the anxiety goes rushing out with it. 
Confession is not for God. He knows. He already knows every single thing that we've done and will do. It's not some big surprise. Lord, I had evil thoughts. Oh, no, you did? Quick, angels, he had evil thoughts. No, God already knows. But confession, confession is for us. And God grabs a hold of Jacob, who's grabbing a hold of him, and says, What's your name? Confess it to me, son. Talk to me. You've got to get it out. You've got to confess. Verse 29. Then Jacob asked him and said, Please, tell me your name. But he said, Why do you ask my name? In other words, Jacob, you know exactly who I am. I don't have to tell you. And he blessed him there. Verse 30, So Jacob named the place Peniel, for he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. And again, Peniel means literally the face of God. Jacob did know who it was that he had wrestled. He had wrestled face to face with God. Not God in all his glory. No, a Christophany. God in human flesh. God in the form of a man. God is Jesus Christ, I believe. Now, this part of the story ends both prophetically and powerfully. Verse 31. I just love this verse. Listen to this closely. Now the sun rose upon him just as he crossed over Penuel and he was limping on his thigh. The sun rose upon Jacob just as he crossed over the face of God. In that moment, daylight broke. Morning had broken for Jacob. And he was limping on his thigh that his walk would never be the same. Verse 32. Therefore to this day the sons of Israel do not eat the sinew of the hip which is on the socket of the thigh because he touched the socket of Jacob's thigh and the sinew of the hip. Okay. The sun rose upon Jacob just as he crossed over Penuel. He limped along. He was weakened. He was broken. He was sanctified. And there is a difference between sanctification and salvation. There's a very big difference between the two. Everyone who believes gets saved. Everyone who cries out the name of Jesus, who seeks Him with faith, who believes that He is the Christ, is saved. But sanctification is a lifelong process of change. And guess what? Sanctification happens one way and one way alone. Through pain. Through brokenness. Through hurt. Pain forces leaning. Hurt requires healing. Salvation, gang, it's just the beginning. But in sanctification, the Father leads you to prevail. Flip in your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. We'll end there, but I want to share one final thing tonight. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. I told you Paul understood something about hurt. He understood something about pain. He also understood something about pain and sanctification. Listen to this. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Now Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And he went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogue at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them 
him bound to Jerusalem. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus. And suddenly, a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. Now the men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was there three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him, so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Oh Lord, I have heard from many about this man. How much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Now listen to this. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is my chosen instrument to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. I will show him how much he must suffer God says, for my name's sake. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And after laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me also that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales. And he regained his sight and he got up and was baptized. Then he took food and he was strengthened. Now for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue saying, He is the Son of God. This is awesome. And those who are hearing him stood to be, or they continued to be amazed and they were saying, Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on his name and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them down before the chief priests? But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Dang. Paul's life was radically altered, radically changed. But God told Ananias, gave him an insight into Paul's world from then on out. I will show him how much he is going to have to suffer for my name's sake. And if you track Paul's life for the rest of his life, it was a lifetime of suffering and pain and hardship and peril. He was shipwrecked. He was stoned. He was left for dead numerous times. He was given the lash. And yet, this man Saul, who waited on the Lord, continued to walk steadily, leaning on God. There are some who even say that the thorn in Paul's flesh that he talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 was blindness. That after his vision of Jesus, he was never able to quite see clearly again. That there was always a shadow in his vision. That there was always a pain or a struggle in his eye. It, it would make sense God would do something like that. He touched Jacob's hip so that every step would be painful. Possibly Paul's eyes, we don't know exactly what the thorn in the flesh is, but Paul said this. He said, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, this is 2 Corinthians 12, 7. 
There was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. And concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, Paul writes, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distress, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And so Jacob lives through life with a dislocated hip. Paul struggles through life with a thorn in his side. And let me ask you a question tonight. Which would you prefer, if given the option, would you rather know God intimately, but be with constant pain, physical, emotional, a constant pain that would always be there in your life, but you get to know the Lord deeply, personally, intimately, or option B, you just want to be saved without any pain or inconvenience, but you'll never actually really get to know God. Just enough to be saved. Which would you choose? Which would you prefer? Bottom line, it's not up to us. <laughs> God will make that decision. Some will have pain. Some will struggle through their lives. Some will have hurt and heartache and aching. And in clinging to God, will have an intimacy with Him that those who don't have the pain will never truly know. Let me tell you what God wants. He wants an eternal, significant, intimate relationship with you at any cost. Even at the cost of His own blood spilled on the cross. He's more concerned with your eternal condition than He is with your present comfort. And that means, my friends, that God will grab you and snatch you out of the jaws of the lion even if it leaves you wounded and bleeding, if it can save you. Let's pray. God, this is hard teaching because everything that's flesh in me cries out for an easier existence. Everything that's carnal in me wants comfort and seeks pleasure. But the Spirit fights against that. And we here tonight understand, Father, that the Spirit is willing, though the flesh is weak. And so, Lord, I guess I can only pray that you will teach us to lean on your sovereignty. And that if, Father, we limp with a pain like Jacob's or Paul's, that we do so with a deeper relationship with you, trusting you even more than if we could run or mount up with wings like eagles. Father, lead us home, for that is our great desire, and we understand from your word that it's your greatest desire. Thank you, Jesus, for loving us this much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.